So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames The Godfathers 1 and 2 But not so fast, we got a podcast We like that too we like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Everybody, welcome back. We are at the uh, beautiful Bon Vivant International Media Center. That's right. Beautiful and warm. Once again, yeah, for a change. Yeah. No kidding. We have gone. Th- we have gone through the bowels of cold hell yeah. this winter. The winter of our discontent. The winter of our discontent. <laughs> of course, joining me, I'm Brad Jones, and joining me, of course, is Keith Enlow, the Bon Vivant himself. What's going on, Keith? Well, you know, like I said, we're, it's just good to be together and, and start getting out. And uh, we've been going to some restaurants and uh, celebrated some some nice occasions with some good food. And you know, we're always about good food and good wine. All the time. All the time. All the time. We got a very special guest. I know. I, I want to get into it. Coming to you all the way from Connecticut. Get that US. second C in there. Yep. Let me tell you, in full disclosure, he has a very formal title, by the way, which does is he? impressive. He does. It is Mr. Jim Burris. He is the Senior Vice President of Promotions and Operations for Columbia Records. Nice. Nice little record uh, company. Jimbo, how are you? I'm doing well, guys. Mr. Enlope, Jim, probably doesn't know, you and I go back all the way. Oh, yeah. The, I, mean, I mean, all the way. All the way. His mom and dad actually had an apartment above my mom and dad on West Main when we were babies. Oh, yeah. That's yep. Right. I guess they overloaded the dryer with diapers and uh, caught it on fire. Almost got on, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There was another reason, too, though, Jim, because if ever there was a human being on this planet that was destined to do what you're doing, it was one Jim Burris. Because Jim Jim's house was the one that had the cool albums, the good stereo, yeah. and everybody gravitated as far as music over to Jim's house. Would you agree with that, Mr. Burris? I would, you know, probably I would say that. But, you know, going back, I mean, it's funny. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, people were like, God, you know, how'd you get into this? And I said, well, you know, I was a rebel. And uh, when I was in sixth grade going into seventh grade, I decided I was going to really rock the world. And everybody in my family, from my brother, my mother, my father, my grandfather was a woodwind instrument player. So I decided to play the baritone. And the ultimate fuck you was I had to carry that goddamn thing to the school and put it on a bus, right? So how smart was I? But that was my radical time. But in all honesty, I I, I grew up in a musical family. Um, I never was told what was good or bad, never told to turn it down. And it was easy to have a six-year-older brother, you know, especially with everything that was going on in the 60s, living through the 70s and 80s and watching all the various types of music change as it did. Uh, my influences were very broad and 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 uh, and wide, and I'd hang out down on Missouri Boulevard at Chuck's uh, Sound Shop, and Chuck would run out to the bank, and I would you know watch it, and he'd give me an album, and that was back when you could go in there, kind of like when we had bookstores, and you could kind of go through the you know the album sleeves, and oh I like this and I like that one, or you could hear this, or you could talk, and I just fell in love with it, and by the time I left Jefferson City, I thought I had a pretty good musical foundation. And, uh, and believe it or not, it turned into a vocation. Well, I have to agree, uh, Jim. You know, having older siblings, and like you, you know, mine were older and they were teenagers in the 60s and 70s. They exposed me to so much good music and so many different types and styles and the evolution of what music was going through at that time really made an impact on my um, my tastes, what I like, what I listen to, and what I was exposed to. So I think we were kind of lucky in that aspect. Well, I agree with you 100%. In fact, it's funny. A lot of people ask me, um, you know, do, have you ever signed a band to the label? I'm like, no, God, no. Uh, first and foremost, I like too much, right? Um, so, so I'm very broad with regard to that. And then I would probably, you know, pass on Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or something, you know, when it comes down to, uh, you know, really fine tuning into there. I can see what I, I can see what I hear and see now. I'm really in the moment. I can't hear or see an artist and believe or understand 
where they might go. Huh, so interesting. That, that was one of my limitations when I first got into the business and probably why I ultimately, um, you know, ended up in the promotion department because my job is to work, promote and market pre-recorded music. You give it to me and that's when the job begins. Jim ended up in San Francisco, right? Which is that close to Napa Valley. Yes. So his wine edification and education was uh, – went through the roof, I'm sure, when you were out in San Francisco. But he is a wino. And by the way, uh, Jim, we consider that to be a term of endearment around here. So, uh, As do I. I attended the University of Missouri for a year, got sick, decided to take the summer off. And I'm glad I did because everybody I knew knew what they wanted to do, you know, what they wanted to do as a curriculum, what they wanted to do as a profession. And the more I thought about it, the more I got into it. I scratched my head, and I had no idea. So I took two years off. I worked over at uh, Pops Lawn and Garden and then went to work over at the nuclear power plant. And about six weeks prior to me getting my journeyman certificate, I had been working with my father and taking aptitude tests to find out what schools were best suited for my needs and my interests. And you'll never believe this. All 22 schools that came up on that list were either on the East Coast, touching the Atlantic Ocean, or the West Coast, the Pacific Ocean. For some reason, and I would never suggest my dad had anything to do with it, he wanted me to move away. (laughs) (laughs) So that blissful household, uh, or so I thought. No, but in all seriousness, I, I, I chose the University of San Francisco, literally went there sight unseen, and that's how I got to San Francisco. And I think that was in about 1981, if, I, if my mind serves me right. So that's where I started the college career and uh, literally landed, went to check into the dorm, standing there to get my key, and had my first experience with an earthquake. Ooh. Um, got up the next morning to read the San Francisco Chronicle, couldn't find one word about the earthquake, but they pulled a 17-foot great white out of the bay in front of Alcatraz. So I immediately realized, uh, guess what? We're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. So that's kind of how it all began. Well, cool, cool. But I take it then while you were in San Francisco, you uh, made a few uh, sojourns up to the uh, the Napa Valley. And uh, things that were going on in, in, in Napa at that time were pretty exciting, actually. It was kind of the... The golden age, if you will, of, uh, of Napa Sonoma Valley wines. But uh, yeah. well, in fact, well, it's funny you mention that, Brad, because Son- uh, Sonoma really wasn't on the map. I mean, you really kind of had to be a little eccentric or really know your stuff to get to the Sonoma uh, uh, County or you know within that uh, uh, that region. I mean, it's just right over the hill, so to speak. But what was interesting is there was one main road that went right through Napa. I mean, the Silverado Trail, I mean, that's where people rode their bikes, and that was about it. I mean, there was nothing back there, really. I mean, there were wineries and obviously, um, you know, vineyards and stuff, but it was really crazy. And then, as we have seen it today, I kind of refer to it as if you build it, they will come. I mean, it has to be flashy. It has to have big gates, and you've got to be able to pull in and, you know, be able to enjoy yourself. Um, And, of course, you you would anywhere. But, yeah, yeah, it was a real interesting time going through that. Uh, I probably didn't get out there until about 19. 83 or 84 so it was a couple three years before i actually went out you know when you drive across the golden gate bridge through marin county and then all of a sudden you start to enter into the wine region out there it's just beautiful worth the trip just to go up turn around and come back and never sip but of course that would be a sacrilege (laughs) it is it is beautiful country you're right about that you know incredible So. so yeah did you have an aha moment with wine with some people, it's a it's a profound experience that that first Cabernet or Pinot or whatever it is that they try the very first time. They just think, you know what, I, I could get into this. You know, it, it's funny you mention that. I, we, we came from a home that always had a wine glass or something that was at the table, whether it was Thanksgiving or, you know, New Year's or something like that. So alcohol was not like the forbidden fruit that you didn't find out until you went to college or, or beyond. Um, and my mom and dad did like good red wine or at the time I thought it was good red wine. But when I got up to Napa Valley and we would go from one vineyard to another, to another, I started to then realize, wow, some of these are really different. You know, this is a Cabernet by so-and-so that's way different than the one I had, you know, two miles down the road. And I think it was the, I want to say the 1980 V. Satui, uh, wine and Daryl, uh, Satui, the owner and winemaker there inherited it all from his father and built an empire out there that is not retail um, available. You have to be on a list. 
Now, it was great because we kind of found it because they had a large parking lot and they sold uh, deli-type products, including a bag that had a paper plate, a spork, and a uh, plastic, <laughs> uh, you know, a wine glass, you know, the type two that you put together. Mm-hmm. And we ended up taking some of their uh, their good, you know, cheeses and salamis and stuff like that um, and sitting outside on their picnic bench. And that's when I really had probably my first aha good Cabernet moment, especially out of the valley. Then. And it was an award-winning, an award-winning by, you know, like California standards in the sense of the state fair, you know, and some of the other um, designations or you know, qualifications that they had there. And then that started me to, to, to branch out. I was not afraid after those trips and those moments, uh, not only to pick up a few bottles and take home. Granted, they never got cellared, so I never could tell you what that tasted like you know, years and years <laughs> down the road. Why would I? But um, it was one of those things that uh, uh, it became apparent. And from that point, what became really, uh, uh, really great is, is to marry those, those tastes with food. And, um, you know, and certainly today I spend probably more time, you know, standing there staring or going through my, my database of what I want to, uh, you know, loving to cook. But I also like to think that I can pair the right wine with the right food. So, um, you know, I think that's where it all began, you know, again. I think I've become a real seasonal drinker. I, I think uh, when it's hot, I don't mind uh, a nice, crisp, clean uh, you know, Pinot Gris or, or a Chardonnay for today's show on uh, Pinot Noir, which is personally one of my absolute favorites. I have to agree with you. And in fact, it's funny because I probably got to the Pinot game a little later on uh, in that I, I started off, you know, with that big, heavy Cabernet. And my brother was always into Zinfandel. So we kind of found into that chewy kind of piece. And then had a couple of other friends uh, or friends, families or folks or what have you that were starting to serve some Pinot Noirs with dinner. And I started to realize that this is incredible fruit bombs and, and, and uh, incredible finesse that goes in with this. When I moved from San Francisco to New York, um, I had a, a guy that was the head of our marketing at the time um, who also grew up on the West Coast. Um, he was from Washington. It's been a lot of time in Southern California Had spent time in, in New York and um, became really big into French wine. In fact, he's, he, he owns a winery up in, in, in Oregon, and um, everything that he does is a Burgundian style. And so I started to really dabble into that. Now, you know, they always say that the best wine you will ever drink is a Burgundy. Of course, the 10 worst wines you will drink are Burgundies because you're still drinking those to find out one great wine again. The Russian River Valley is where, you know, a lot of that Northern California good, you know, good juice comes from. I have absolutely in the last five years discovered Oregon, Pinot Noirs, especially through the Willamette Valley. And, you know, I don't know why, but I kind of get stuck in a rut. So this spring, you know, instead of it's going to be nice outside and I might try to find a, you know, we call it Hampton's, Hampton's Gatorade, you know, the, the pink juice, so to speak, the rosés and stuff. But I'll, I'll work in and out of that seasonal time, but I will get into a particular grape or a particular type and, and stick with it probably for too long. You know, I might go, you know, a month of, of Pinot Noirs, you know, mixing other things in between, but maybe over, you know, maybe over the top a little bit, so. There's something that's so seductive, so passionate about, you know, the Pinot Noir grape and what can be done with it, especially the styles, uh, you know, of, of making it and, you know, the various other nuances that come with it. Were you influenced by the movie Sideways like a lot of us were when it came to approaching Pinot Noir? Funny, because, funny enough. Because I was. I have to admit that I was. I drank a Merlot last night and I thought about that movie. And it's funny you bring that up um, because, you know, they, they said Merlot was, you know, crap. And tr- you can do the research. More Merlot sales had actually gone down. And people had asked me because, you know, they thought I was into wine or what have you. Do you like Merlot? I'm like, yeah, you do. Oh, you do? And I'm like, yeah. And so do you. I go, you like a Bordeaux, don't you? Because, you know, Bordeaux's are blended and there's a lot of Merlot in there. Oh, well, I didn't right. realize that. I said, yeah, please don't go on what the movies say, yeah. for God's sake. But interestingly <laughs> enough, Keith, about that movie, I was – I don't want to sound braggadocious or whatever, but – I, had, I, was at the, I was in L.A. at the Grammys, and I had to go. I was picked not to go to the Grammys. I was picked to have to take one of my bands out to dinner because we had a feeling that they were going to win a Grammy, and we needed to have them in one spot. 
And if they won a Grammy, then it was my job to get them to our after party. And so I got there. And I, it was a steakhouse, and I had a private room. I so you were the zookeeper. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> exactly right. How much of your job is being a babysitter? Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. Good Lord. So I sat down there, and I was uh, – and we had the sommelier came over and said, you know, obviously I believe you're here at a steakhouse. You're going to have steak, and you're waiting for a table of people. Can I interest you in a glass of wine? And I said, yes. And, she, and he said, you know, again, because you're having steak, I'm assuming you're having red. We just got this brand new wine in. I'd like for you to, t- uh, you know, to try it and taste it. I think it's phenomenal. I'm like, okay, whatever. And he goes, it's a Pinot Noir, and it's sea smoke. And Ooh. I'm like, okay, great. And so sure enough, this was right before Sideways came out. Mm. And that's the wine that they were looking for. Uh, they never drank it in the movie. I think they showed it only once when it was sitting up on the bar. But... Um, from that day forward, I called the, uh, the wine rack, found out everything about it. And I've been on their mailing list ever since. Yeah. So, um, you know, quite- well, Brenda and I spent a little time up in Willamette Valley, as I told you. And I tell you what, you know, you some of the absolute best vineyards in the world for Pinot. And we, our only regret was we didn't get a chance to stay longer because it's a beautiful area of Oregon. And, uh, man, we, we, got, we got turned on to, to some really good ones. I, I just nabbed one of the, the greatest bargains on the planet. I don't know if you're familiar. You remember the Sokol Blosser vineyard? No, no, I'm not familiar with it. Sokol Blosser was like a bunch, you know, hippie kids that started a vineyard out there. And uh, they're having their 50th anniversary. They sold a case of their Pinot for 1971 prices for $6.75 the <laughs> shipping and everything it was $132 for a for a dozen i am so tickled about it i tell you cuz their pinots are some of my absolute favorite but anyway uh, well, all yeah. this talk of wine i believe we need to drink some <laughs> I do wine too. the subtitle of the podcast jim is one bottle two friends and then three top picks Let's get the important stuff out of the way first, and let's talk about the one bottle, okay? So this is what we've opened, uh, Jim. We have a bottle of 2016 en route Pinot Noir. Uh, it is Russian River Valley. You mentioned that's where some of the best fruit's coming from. Uh, Le Pommier is, uh, is the uh, vineyard. And Brad and I first were turned on to this wine when we stumbled into uh, one of our favorite places in Jefferson City, Barvino, and his uh, he had a local wine purveyor there who was sampling it with him, and we got in on the tasting, and I fell in love with it right then. Well, this one is from the Farniente uh, Winery, which is which is pretty interesting because it, it actually started in 1885. A guy named John Benson started the winery. Actually, you probably know this name, the, the wine Nickel Nickel. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was Gil Nickel yeah. that actually started uh, the winery after Prohibition yeah. and got it got it going again. Farniente is <laughs> unbelievable Cabernet. Oh, it's incredible. We Cabernet. had a bottle the other night. We split a bottle and we uh, did. Kind of splurged. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was really the, nice. It wasn't one of the cheaper bottles that we've no, ever spent. No, it wasn't. But actually, uh, this Pinot was established in two thousand and seven. So. Uh, it's been around. It is the kind of Pinot that I like, Jim. I, I know what you said is so true, and I think I think I've always called uh, I've always called Pinot the O positive of wine because it goes with a lot <laughs> yeah. of stuff. There's a palette for all different kinds of Pinot because you've got a lighter one uh, that's just you know a couple of ticks above a rosé. And then you've got some that I, I would swear you could put in a tasting and you wouldn't know that it wasn't yeah. a cab or a zen or something something a lot heavier. So um, this is pretty middle of the road. It, it just has a great nose on it. It's it's actually you can it's kind of brown around the edges of the glass, which tells me it's either age worthy or it's getting a little age on it. And it's a 2016, so it's not that old, but um, little musty, little barnyard. It is a little musty, little really- barnyard nose, but I like that. Um, and it's it's What's fruit tan- it's fruit forward, but it's not tannic. But then again, the alcohol's fourteen five on this. It's got a little a little in the back. I'll tell you the thing I like about this is the, the finish. And I often, Jim, I don't know about you, but I often judge a wine by how long it stays on my palate. Mm-hmm. How long it? How often do I have to go back to glass to get another taste? If I can, you know, if a glass lasts me a while, then I know it's a good wine. 
if I'm if I'm pounding it and going back to it and drinking it, it's gone in in ten minutes, and I know you know. Yeah. It can still be good, but it's uh, it's not that not got that viscosity. There's a and, hole in uh, the bottle, right? Yeah, there's a hole in the bottle. That should be somewhere. a so- that should be a song. <laughs> <laughs> but this is very nice, and this would pair. This is really a middle of the road Pinot, if you ask me. It's pretty nice. Pinot. Uh, this this would pair with so much. Um, some, What's the price point lamb. on this? About a sixty dollar bottle, but it's rated. It's it's ninety two to ninety six points rated by yeah. multiple yeah. reviewers. So uh, this is a really good bottle of wine. And uh, not that I put all, all of my eggs in the rating basket, but it sometimes can be a guide. Yep. And yep. Um, great legs. So yeah, if you get a chance, en route or in route, depends on where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> what are you it's drinking? What are you drinking, it Jim? Like the pedigree there, you, you can't beat it. I mean, you know, first no. and foremost, you know, when you're talking about Farniente, you have yeah. great quality wine, and you know that the. The, the the fruit that's going in there is is phenomenal, yep. and you do know that the winemaking, as you just mentioned, from the the heritage that comes with it, Brad, that they, they know exactly what they're doing, and it's funny. And Keith, as you said, you know, it, it's funny. I I'll I'll drink red wine with anything. I don't care if it's cheese, fish, you know, <laughs> agree. chicken. I, I agree. To me, you know, yeah. I, and, and vice versa. I typically won't eat steak and drink a Chardonnay or something like that. And it's only because I just don't think it pairs well together. It just doesn't hold up. That's yeah. all I have, and I'm not doing it. Then right. I'll deal with it. But, right. uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to um, sit on a couple of different committees um, um, that help raise money for uh, cancer awareness, uh, AIDS, and various other entities um, through the gift of wine and being able to host tables. And we've put together um, through two different charity groups, um, annual wine dinners. And I was walking through the silent auction and this bottle caught my eye and I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting looking. What is that? And I looked and nobody had bid on it and they were bidding a case of, um, coincidentally, it's the year and everything that I have 2012 Pinot Noir, and I looked at the at, at the label, and there's this gigantic O on it, with a couple of letters in between it. <laughs> so imagine if you're looking at an I chart, and the number, you know, <laughs> and you have this E I, and then right below the E I, exactly the same, like a duplicate, it's E I, with a gigantic O circling that. And I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I'm like, wait, E I E I O, and then I look down again. And I picked up the bottle, and I realized the O is for Oregon, and it looks just like the O done for the Oregon Ducks, you know, right, that right. branding piece. And so I didn't think much of it, and I bid on it. Sure enough, I'm walking out of there, and they're like, you know, your paddle number. And I'm like, there you go. Well, you got this case of wine. So long story short, I found out who donated it. Just coincidentally, we were at dinner, and I was having dinner with this person, and we were talking about Oregon Pinot Noirs, and he said, well, yeah, I did that. So we started talking deeper, and this is when I first really started to open my eyes to the Oregon Pinot Noirs, the, the Willamette Valley and Dundee. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had these wines before, and I think they're go-to. If, you're at a, if somebody hands you a wine list at a dinner, it's one of the most nerve-wracking things in the world because if somebody thinks that you're into wine, they think you're going to make the biggest and the best selection in the world, right. as, you, as we all know, right? Yeah. You don't like and the pressure. Yeah. Who needs, no, who needs the pressure? Yeah. Who needs the pressure? Because then you're like, okay, well, do I pick the $40 bottle of wine or the 400 bottle of wine? You know, because chances are the $400 bottle of wine, which we can't afford, might not be as good or to the palate taste that this person's looking for. So right. you, know, you have this pressure. And it's funny, when my daughter first started taking some people out and clients out, she goes, well, how do you know? I go, go to Oregon, get a Pinot Noir. You can't go wrong. And the price point is typically, you know, affordable, you know, yeah. at that particular time. It's good advice. Yeah. So I looked into this. So this E-I-E-I-O wine, I was drinking it. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I got into a little bit deeper. It's made by a guy named Jay McDonald. When you open the cork, you pull it out, and it's got musical notes on it. And you're thinking, huh, old McDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> and interestingly <laughs> enough, Jay is one of the most incredible human beings you'll ever meet. I've been to his house, his, his winery. When you walk into his rock winery, one of the things that will catch your eye is you open the door, and on the wall, now granted, it's, it's, you know, it's, there's tanks and you know, all kinds of barrels and things going on in there is a magnificently huge sign that says everything matters. And you start to realize that everything he puts into his wine 
That's his mantra. So he has a number of different wines. This one happens to be the Cuvée I. And so what you'll see on the label, it'll say E-I, E-I, and the first I at the top is darkened out. The rest are red. And that proves that it's a Cuvée E. He also has, I mean, I. He also has an E and stuff like that. And um, why this is a 2012, one, the story, because this is one of the wines that I bought at the auction. Two, is that very similar to Burgundian wines, Oregon wines, especially from that region, can lay down like Burgundies. In fact, I told him I opened up one of his good buddies' wines, um, a guy named Thomas, John Thomas. Absolutely can't find this wine anywhere, except at auction and or on his list. Uh, by the way, you can you can Google E I E I O wine. It's called J on his farm, um, and you can you get on his list or you can buy directly from the winery. And I suggest you know doing that to anybody that uh, is looking for good wine. But um, I told him I'd opened up a 2012 Thomas, and he's like, you're killing the wine. You can't do that. That wine will lay down for another 10 years. So I'm like, okay. I picked up the phone. I'm like, wait, what? And so he started educating me further about, you know, the longevity a lot of these wines have up there. And it's it's a lot to it. You know, to your point, you know, about the Russian River Valley. You know, it's the soil content. It's those um, warm, hot days, cool, foggy nights, and, you know, things that come with it. And uh, it absolutely works great. This here is about... 14.3% alcohol. It's got a really beautiful nose on it. This has been open for about an hour. It smells of plum, a little bit of chocolate, maybe blueberry in there. Um, you know, it's got a nice finish. Um, it looks good in the glass. Um, doesn't look overaged. It's not a darker. Um, it's got a you know, beautiful, vibrant color. Um, with each swirl, you know, the nose just releases. I, I like to let my, uh, my wines breathe. Um, I, I usually typically open them. Smell them, take a sip, let it sit for a little bit, pour a little bit more. People always say, you know, a little bit more. I'm like, no, how about a shallow pour so this opens up? You can always come back. Right. And, uh, right. and I like to watch that kind of evolution. So, Well, we talk about that all the time, Jim, how impatient we are sometimes with our wines. Not well, only yeah, not only well, laying them down, or but just when you open the bottle, letting them sit in the bottle, let them open, open up in the glass. Brad and I are just commenting while you were telling the story that just in the past 15 minutes, this, this the wine we're drinking has changed and opened oh, up yeah. and it's, you know, it happens all the time, but we are very impatient drinkers. I, I believe our, the Western culture is, um, and we've talked a lot about, do we lay stuff down? If we do, how long do we risk, like you said, holding it too long and, and losing it. Um, so it's a, it's a delicate balance there and it's kind of fun, but it's kind of scary too. It is. And, you know, you can read to your point earlier about all of the, uh, you know, the numbering systems. I mean, who the hell would have thought Robert Parker picking that 1982 Mouton Rothschild and putting it up in the high nineties and getting laughed at, um, you know, would be the wine and the moment that would define his career. And in fact, after that, um, he has a good friend named Park B. Smith, who's one of the biggest collectors in the world, um, turned around and Park bought, gosh, I don't, I want to say it was at least 200 cases of it, maybe, um, and held it. And ultimately, Parker made that 100 point wine. And that was what really put his palate on the map. Side story about Park B. Smith, he sold that wine at auction, and he's a, an alumni of Holy Cross, and he donated all the money back to Holy Cross. And uh, You talk about a, an incredible seller. He's got 85,000 bottles in his cellar up in Lakeville, uh, oh uh, up in Litchfield County. It's five sellers. Every time it gets bigger, they have to blow up and you know go underground and you know, <laughs> keep going and going and going. But that's, a whole, that's, a, that's another story um, for another time. And, yes, I've been in that cellar, fortunately, a couple of times. But um, – did he let you pick so, something uh, out? Well, that's that's another thing. We, we did we did a a Harlan Colgen tasting, and we had five bottles of each of their Cabernets, and there were four of us. And while we were in the process of doing it, uh, Park's wife and a good friend of mine were up there. Another wine buddy that I, um, you know, we eat and drink and talk and probably email daily about wine. Um, we were talking about wines and anything that we brought up, his lovely wife would get up and bring it back to the table. So the next thing I know is we have like 16, 18 bottles of wine open. And I turn around to my friend, Jim, I said, don't mention another wine. 
if you haven't caught, <laughs> what a problem to have. If, if you haven't caught wind of this, um, <laughs> you know, this isn't working for us. I mean, it is, but there's 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 a downfall too. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, that was wonderful. But back to one thing that you guys were talking about with that um, um, the, the the Russian River Valley. So I have another friend here um, that we get together and he loves to barbecue and he likes a big robust wine and he's extremely smart and he started talking bullshit about all these various tastes and tannins and, and i'm like okay Lynn, Lynn, stop 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 do you know what you're talking about he goes yeah i'm telling you i said do you know where it comes from <laughs> and he goes no i don't and i never expected the honesty of that and i said well <laughs> it's interesting interesting so from that point forward, I had found a company in San Francisco, not to do a custom crush, but would actually walk you through with their winemakers, kind of like, like City Winery does today. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, but there's an establishment here in New York as well. I think, I think they spread out to, uh, you know, to L.A. But nonetheless, between... That period of time for two years, Lind and I, we would fly to San Francisco. We were barrel tasting wines and we picked a wine from Alexander Valley. And they think it was from one of the Farniente families. They will not tell us, but according to the, um, you know, where it was. So we, we bought tonnages of grapes and made a barrel of wine. Now it was crazy to be able to do that. But we did it through webcams and, you know, like we didn't go out for the picking, but we knew what time we wanted them picked and what time we wanted them, you know, uh, brought in and, you know, everything just to learn. So we did it once and had the greatest time uh, doing it. And um, it was a 2006 um, Amber Ridge Valley Russian River Pinot Noir. So um, we dabbled. And Very cool. One and only time, but it was a lot of fun. That's because, a great uh, story. That is a yeah, good it, story. It, it, it was a lot of fun to pull off. So, <laughs> That's a great yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, and, and a learning experience, and that was really what it was all about. And we figured. You know, hey, what if we got lucky and had good wine? Well, great. And if that's the case, and we're going to enjoy it, and we're going to have some good gifts. If not, we're gonna have a lot of uh, salad dressing fixing. <laughs> for, for Bonus. We might need, you know, yes. Bonus. Yes. Hey, Bon Vivants, you know when we Like That Too was launched, we knew very little about what was needed to promote the podcast online. That's right. So we turned to Greg Arnold at GAA Consulting. GAA Consulting was a lifesaver helping us get things started. Greg is a small business owner who loves helping small businesses grow. He takes the time to listen to your business goals. GAA Consulting will custom design your website and create a digital marketing strategy to help you reach those goals. Every project is tailor-made to meet your small business needs and preferences. And Greg can teach you to manage things yourself, or you can hand things over to him and he'll lighten your workload. You know, if your business needs help building an online presence, visit GAAConsultingLLC.com. That's GAAConsultingLLC.com. Custom solutions for your small business needs. And thanks to Greg for sponsoring the podcast. Well, we, you know, we could sit and talk wine all day, but I do want to get your your story as how you got into uh, the business that you're in and some of the some of the highlights and lowlights and what the journey has been. You know, tell us just a little bit about you're in San Francisco in school. You know, what what's your next move? What happens? All right. Well, after the earthquake, I tried to go to sleep. Um, I was waiting <laughs> on my roommate to uh, show up from Japan. I was on the international floor. I couldn't sleep, of course time differences there. So I walked across the street and I saw they were looking for volunteers. Do you like the dead Kennedys? Do you like this? Do you like that? I'm like, yep, yep, yep. They were looking for volunteers. So I went down and volunteered the next day, started working at the college radio station and was at the first show. I think it was the gang of four that night at the Kabuki nightclub. Uh, within the next year, I was in three different departments and named the program coordinator to take over the station. Um, the program director at the time was uh, moving on to a trade publication. So I did that for about a year, and I was at a show one night um, with the band uh, Madness. Uh, I, was, I was invited by Warner Brothers, and the CBS guy came up, and he goes, I don't know what you're doing, but don't do it anymore. Uh, you're going to be our college rep. So I spent my senior year of college working for CBS Records, promoting records to other college radio stations throughout the Northwest. And upon graduation, I was hired by RCA to stay in San Francisco and be the, North, uh, the Northern California 
uh, uh, region or local promotion manager. Hey Jim, who were some of your CBS uh, albums that you were you were pushing at that time? Oh gosh, uh, well you, you got to realize that CBS was the, the the parent company, so the two labels that really made it up was Columbia and Epic. Okay, and if you go back to you know the, the early '80s and stuff, then you know you're talking Springsteen and Loverboy and Toto and sure. Journey, and, which is we'll know, discuss later is kind of ironic, isn't it, with where you yeah. are now? Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, what happened? Then, what happened was, is then Virgin Records came over and started in the United States um, about 1987, and I had put two years in at RCA, and they hired me and asked me to um, expand my territory, and I did. And about that time, the guy that told me at that dinner, "Quit your whatever you're doing and come work for CBS," he was the local columbia records representative the, you know the promotion manager there at the time so he moves to new york i go to work at virgin two years later he calls me up he goes quit your job i'm like right he goes no you're going to come work for us at columbia records and i said where he goes there and i'm like oh okay you know that <laughs> that, that old adage what do you want to do when you grow up i wanted that job i mean that was the first thing i did as i walked into the cvs you know shop and this guy the Columbia Records guy. I mean, that's where Bruce Toto, Loverboy, you know, that's where all those bands were at the time. And I was like, yeah, that's me. That's what I want to do. So sure enough, I flew to New York, got the job, flew back, quit, and started working there in 1988. Same guy calls me four years later, you're moving to New York. And I said, okay. So um, by that time, I was in the family. Mm -hmm. Columbia in 1988, 89 had, uh, um, well, CBS had been sold to Sony. So between 88 and 89 is when the parent company, the umbrella piece, um, CBS, turned to Sony Music. And uh, But I'd always worked for Columbia proper. Columbia, just a little background, Columbia or Sony Music right now is made up of four labels, uh, Columbia, Epic, RCA, and um, Arista. And that's where the talent is. So we sign bands, we promote and market, and we hopefully you know um, profit uh, both monetarily as well as you know from success standpoint of making them household names etc so that's where it all started and i started in the national office and i um um you know worked my way into various other things and somehow the operations piece came out which is actually for me it's an oxymoron to put me in a position like that because i have to handle all of the administration and budgets and personnel of people so um that, that means i had to be responsible <laughs> which, which is which is not really uh akin to going out and listening to bands every night exactly right I mean, <laughs> here's the bottom line you know we got married very young had kids right off the bat thank god because that kept me um what's the old adage you know if, if you're if you're drunk you know and you lay down in the bed and it starts to spin you're supposed to put a foot on the ground well my lovely wife now, 37-plus years and two wonderful kids and three grandkids have kept me grounded and focused, you know, from that day forward. A woman's so, a saint, Jim. Yeah, yep. absolutely. <laughs> it really is. So from 1984 on, and I joke about, you know, being the oxymoron of doing that. I wasn't the greatest math person in the world, but there's just something that I can see when it starts to look at what we do, you know, from a financial standpoint, what makes sense and doesn't make sense, you know, to go out there and, and to promote market. These these uh, songs, these artists, these bands, and you know the things that come with it. So, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. So you I just celebrated 32 years or 32 and a half years at Columbia Records. Um, I moved here to New York, like I said, in '92. We had no idea about anything in New York. Uh, that's how we made it and, and landed in Connecticut. We're right in Greenwich, Connecticut. We live in a, in, in a village called Riverside. I walk to the train station in the morning. I have a 48 minute train ride in, and I walk down to the office and. You know, it depends on what time I get uh, done getting done with a show or entertaining that night. I'll, you know, catch the train back or catch a car home and, you know, do it again. So it's pretty much um, a 24-7 gig. You're in the promotional end of it, meaning that somebody in the organization has bird-dogged the, the axe down. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Have you yeah. at any time said, you really want me to push these guys? They suck. <laughs> These, they're really not very good. How in the world, Jim, because you've got a discerning ear. I mean you – and I know you go out and you hear all of these acts. But at some point you've got to say, what were you guys thinking? <laughs> yeah. I have um, 
Yes, that has happened on more than one occasion, believe it or not. Um, you learn, you learn to be stoic. Um, you learn to use other metrics and other adjectives and excitable words and marketing terms to be able to make the presentation. It's called, act, it's called acting. Yes, it is. It really is. But what I also have to realize is, is that, you know, I might not like the Pinot Noir that you're drinking and you might not like mine. So therefore somebody, what might be ear candy to them might not be to me and vice versa. Right. And fair enough. Fair enough. And that probably wasn't a fair question either, Jim, but, well, I, but I'm thinking, question. I'm thinking, you know, you got to push. I mean, it's your, it's your livelihood making, um, band X, Y, Z, you know, the next, the next big thing. And you're thinking, First of all, these guys are head cases, and I don't know – I really don't know how in the world that uh, – you know, that there's a great line in that thing you do, you know. That's too long for some bands. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've been in sales my whole career, Jim, and anybody who's been in sales and promotion, that's what it is. And so you find a way to do it, and, and you're right. You you find the uh, the positives to accentuate and – and you uh, don't dwell on the negative. So, well, absolutely. Um, I mean, how many times have you heard a song on the radio or wherever, and you heard it, and you're like, "Oh God, that's horrible," and you hear it again, you turn the radio or just anything to get away with. It. You know, six weeks later, you're singing it in the shower. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's an interesting dichotomy on you know what what it does and what it takes, and it's everybody's a little different. Um, I remember a lot of people criticized classic rock radio stations and how many more times do you have to listen to Stairway to Heaven? Look, if you like it, you like it. For me, I need people to ingest music a lot quicker. You know, it's a financial piece to it, you know, the consumption piece. Sure. We yeah. drive that market in, yeah. that, in that regard. And today it's really interesting because we have so many different outlets that are out there that kids are pushing so hard for that, you know, they're, they seek and discover music like nobody's business. And, right. you know, you have to be in that feeding lane. The same yeah. way with classic rock. When we put the new ACDC record out, we didn't have a tour to announce because of COVID. We didn't have any. We don't have the video outlets we once had. And it's typical that anybody that's of the typical demographic that would be the consumer for uh, ACDC it's probably not going on YouTube or, you know, some of these other social media outlets or whatnot to be able to discover music. It's got to be put right into their feeding lane. And we got really lucky. I mean, we had this record done for uh, six, seven months or so, and we were just about to go to Amsterdam and, uh, and put together a music video because the band lives all over the world. And uh, so y you have to pick a point to get everybody in. And uh, shortly thereafter, doing the uh, the music video, Dodge called up and said, uh, you know, we were pitching them and they said, you know, we have the perfect the perfect avenue for them to come in. So this past spring, summer, that's when the Dodge commercial you know, launched. And that's when we could you know, put together a complete marketing plan around it. And now, before that, when we had the black ice, you know, we did have the tour and we also had Walmart that wanted to get together with a complete um merchandise right. um, yeah. staging area in their store mm -hmm. so we could drive people there. So, you know, it's just whatever those opportunities to come about, but it comes back down to one thing and one thing only the music's got to be great and the music's got to be a hit or nobody's going to give a shit. The, the younger people, are they as antsy about getting back out and hearing live music as probably people of our generation? A hundred percent. Okay. 100%. Great. Yeah. Maybe even more so. Yeah. They yeah. literally, uh, I mean, granted, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm typically in New York or L.A. and um, the between the you know some of the smaller stages, the clubs and nightclubs and whatnot, all the way up to you know the big arenas and, and stadiums, people are dying and clamoring to get back out there. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, they're trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, it's got to be a safety issue. Um, you know, they're pushing some of these festivals. Some of the festivals, like Bonnaroo, has been pushed, uh, uh, you know, to the fall. I know Glastonbury in, um, in the U.K. has been canceled completely. Um, I just don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. We will see live music this year toward the end of the year, I would assume. At what capacity, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've, we've had some of our artists experiment the chain smokers this summer out the hamptons they tried to do something to drive in and they had you know cages all built and cars and stuff like that and <laughs> next thing you know it's three to five thousand people broke it all down they were up at the stage like it was a rave it's like okay that that's not the idea there and you know you did, and the band didn't want that and that's not what the promoter tried to create and stuff so 
you know, we have to protect ourselves from each other, so to speak. Um, but we just have to make sure it's right. But yeah, a hundred percent people are just clamoring to get back out there and see live music. You know, when you tell your story, it seems like you, you were almost thrown into this industry very young, very quickly trial by fire type thing. What was one of maybe the hardest or most surprising things you had to learn or learned early that, that really you didn't have any notion of? That's a really good question. I think, you know, not to sound generalized, I think I had to figure out that it was a business. You know, for me, it was always a, a hobby. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, my dad, God love him, before he passed away, he says, is this really what you want to do? He goes, yeah, can you make a living doing it? So he kind of had that same view. And for me, not just going to concerts or playing, you know, songs for people. Hell, I played songs for people when I was in high school. Hey, listen to this. I love this. Do you like this? Why don't you like this? <laughs> it was always one of those, you know, uh, opportunities. But I don't think I realized, and I think the difficulty of it was, was putting all the puzzle pieces together to see what the whole of it was going to be and how it all mixed and matched together. The intrigue of that um, helped propel me, um, not just from a curiosity standpoint, but for trying, trying and still to this day, try to master, you know, that craft and, and, and that art. And the interesting thing about it is, is when I got into the business, the commerce piece of it was simply selling a physical product. You know, I mean, I, I got in after eight tracks, but right. it's still an album and, and <laughs> right. sets. You know, yep. and today, as you've heard me say, I have not talked about selling records. Right, I still talk about a full length piece of music as a record, and um, you know, there are various avenues that you can buy a CD, you can buy digital singles, but the majority of it is a streaming mechanism. And then there are the other licensing pieces, you know, whether you're taking a, you know, 12 or 15 second piece of music that's been licensed through TikTok or, you know, right. some of the other um, social media platforms nowadays. So it's it's been real interesting. And not to mention that back in the day, we didn't have the full relationship with our artist, good, bad or indifferent, that we do today. So now we will share in some of the concert revenue in certain in certain areas, yeah. same thing with merchandise, etc. But they too will share in certain areas that you know that we had as well. So, I think if I could brag and pat my company on the back, we're the most transparent on being able to work with our artists and their art. Music is art. To be able to profit, and I don't just mean that from a dollar and cent standpoint, to make them profit with their dreams and to let them realize what they want. And I think the key thing, going back to your original question, is, is at what point, what was the thing that I had to learn? What was that pivotal point? The demographics change every day. The psychographics change every day. In this business, if you wake up and you grind your teeth or if you wake up and you don't go to, want to go to work, it's time to get out. You lost your love. You lost your passion. It's never happened to me. I get up. I go to the office. I work all day. I go to dinner, I go to a show, I come home. I put 18 hours in a day, and I do it six days a week. I try to take a day off, you know, and I, I, that's just what you do. And the good news is the business <laughs> the business does shut down at Christmas. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it but sounds like a fascinating that sounds like a fascinating uh, world, and I know, I know Brad and I, when we knew we were going to talk to you, we're just uh, really excited. Yeah. And, uh, but before we run out of time on this episode, we want to do our uh, our three top picks. Okay. So, okay. and we we kind of went. Uh, we found out you're a foodie. Uh, we're both foodies, and so um, and you like to cook. You're a you're a home chef, and uh, so our three top picks for today are your three top meals that you like to prepare. And, of course, the story behind it. So, you know, there's a, there's a reason that you're going to choose. Now, our rules on three top picks is you don't have to do them in order one, two, three. If they're in the top three, there probably isn't an order. Um, we'll each do one at a time. Okay? We'll go around the circle. And the guest gets to go first. So, wow. And we cheat. And we cheat. Way. You can do an honorable mention. Yeah, you, you can know, do an yeah. honorable mention, too. We, we cheat, Jim, so yeah. that's fine. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and a great uh, – a great, uh, you know, trivial question. Um, that, that's Wait, we like to think nothing on our show is trivial, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
you know, it, this is a deep educational podcast. I guarantee. Uh, it's funny because I do love to cook. And I have vacillated between spending hours, frustrated hours in the kitchen, right, trying to create some sort of a masterpiece to great failure, to being able to master the 30-minute meal because I have walked in the house at 8 o'clock. I usually take, if I'm not going out that night, I'll take the 704 or 706 train home and walk in the door at 8 o'clock. Well, what do you do then? Well, you have to meal prep. Or if you're like me and you get to go through Grand Central and has a wonderful market, you got a fishmonger there or something like that. So one of the things that I learned real quick, right, is that my wife loves salmon. So I have learned to master salmon like nobody's business. And I can do it anywhere and anything to it. Well, that's no small feat because one of my – I love salmon and actually I only eat it uh, basically raw. Because any other time I, I get it, it's usually overcooked to my taste. And well, so it's a, it's a, that's no that's small feat to be able to uh, master salmon. Well, that's yeah. the key because you can't obviously uncook anything for that matter. But with salmon or any other, other type of delicate fish such as that, if you can then always put it back on or do what have you. Now, the one thing I will never do is microwave anything to get it hot. I mean – leftover or something like that in a typical cooking situation but like one of my go-to things and i can give this to you real simple it's it's i love to have salmon with skin on turn up the barbecue medium high put a piece of aluminum foil down right Mm -hmm. don't even put any kind of uh, uh oil or anything on there lay it skin side down what i've done on the top of it if i salt and peppered it and sometimes I like to use the Paul Perdone salmon seasoning, right. it's just you know, like at the grocery store, tickle that on there a little bit. And then I'll take a honey mustard and give it a little schmear across the ah, top of it. Right? Nice. And I'll cook it until all of a sudden I feel comfortable, and then I'll flip it, right? Mustard uh, side down. I'll very slowly pull that foil off. And magically, the skin comes off with it. Now, some people like to have the skin. And if that's the case, I have a trick to do that, too. Yeah. But that's exactly what it is. And that's then you great. just put a quick sear on that uh, that mustard. It comes out as a glaze, and then you're done. What do you got, well my, well, my first dish is not fancy, I, you know. It's but it's something that I cook because my girls like it. My daughters love it. They love my version of it, and that is I, – I just make a pretty mean spaghetti and with meat sauce. I can attest to that. And, it is really um, good. And I've refined it over the years. I, I don't – you know, I've gotten to where I I do so- Italian sausage and beef in the meat sauce. I've, uh, I've now added um, very finely chopped portobello mushrooms to it that, that – appear as ground beef when you eat them because they're so finely chopped. A lot of people don't like mushrooms in their their spaghetti sauce, but it adds a certain richness and um, you know depth of flavor that I think it misses without it. And um, of course, I've learned that like a lot of those types of sauces, make it a day ahead and let it set overnight and marry in the refrigerator and it's better the next day. And so spaghetti is one of my favorites to prepare because, uh, you know, my family loves it. And I like it too. And you know what? You you put it in the refrigerator, and it's better the next day. Yep. And it's better the next day. Yep. It's kind of the gift that keeps on it giving. It does. You're unless, right. Unless you gobble it all down the first. I time. frequently freeze it because when yeah. we go visit the girls, I always take a batch to them. They always want stuff, you know, from home. So that's one of my favorites. Well, Jim, I am not the culinary expert of the two of you because I have eaten in Mister Inlow's kitchen on many occasions, but. One of the things that, that we do love um, is I, I consider the state of Louisiana the epicenter, the eating epicenter of the universe. And so I, um, I do make a pretty good gumbo. I haven't nice. – uh, and I, I try to do it old school. You know, I uh, take the chicken and that's one day and you boil uh, and, and take care of the chicken and you make your own chicken broth. And, uh, and then as the book says – First, it starts with the roux. Got to make a roux. Yep. So I take the bar stool. I literally take the bar stool in the kitchen, and I sit by the stove. And it's real simple to make a roux, except for the cooking part. Yeah. I mean, it's only because it, it's a it's a cup of of uh, flour and it's a cup of. Uh, Oil. The recipe is easy. Yeah, the recipe. (laughs) It's the execution that's the problem. Or you can use, you know, you can use bacon, bacon grease or whatever, but you got to sit there and you got to keep moving it around. I actually, you'd be impressed by this, Jim. I actually have 
a gumbo spoon that is signed by Jimmy Buffett's sister, Lucy Buffett, who uh, I got down, <laughs> I got down at uh, at uh, Lulu's down in um, Gulf Shores, and uh, she was there. And uh, by golly, I've got, and it's a great spoon because when you make a roux. You kind of need a flat edge so you can kind of scrape because basically you're not stirring. You're scraping the bottom back and forth and back and forth because if you get a little flake in there, you get to throw it out because it's going to get oh, – yeah. it's going to be bitter and nasty. Don't go answer the phone. Go to the bathroom before you go make your roux. Yeah. And then you put all the other great stuff in there. I usually like little little uh, andouille and chicken. You know, take the chicken that's reserved from when you're making your – your juice and stuff, and 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 honestly, if you've got the time, put it out there and let it sit for a day. Yeah, and, I can vouch uh, for for Brad's uh, gumbo. The only problem with Brad's gumbo is he doesn't make it often enough. Do you remember Justin, Jim, Justin I, Wilson, the Cajun cook? He, I don't recall. Oh, he was the best man. He always said, first of all, never cook with a wine that you're not going to drink while you're cooking. That's right. <laughs> and down here, that's very very important. <laughs> <laughs> Very important because they don't they don't whip anything up down there. It's yeah. it's it's a it's a process. His other great quote was, "I'm not a wine critic. I'm a wine drinker." <laughs> Another one that I've old enough. Yeah. But anyway, my gumbo, and I just put a little. I put it over some rice, or you know, and that's uh, it's one of my uh, my favorite comfort foods to make. Yeah. So, yeah. what else what, you got, Jim? What What's your second one? Well, you know, I could go through the entire seafood list, uh, <laughs> and I will go, you know, and kind of cut something in between here. You know, granted, we live right here on, near the ocean, so which you're uh, blessed, you get a lot. yes. Um, but one of the things that I have kind of really gotten into, and um, Beth, my wife, loves linguine with clams, <sighs> and um, it, it's great because we have these things they call piss clams, and the reason they call them piss clams is they have the little tail that comes out, and you can get them right out here out of the. Uh, a mile away from here, there's a, a clam. Uh, uh, there's a point where you can get clams, and they have clam beds, four different beds down there. But I tend to go to something a little bit different because uh, uh, I'm usually trying to go a little uh, quicker on it. But it's a linguine with clams. And what I have found, and this is funny, I didn't realize this until you know years ago, what lemon zest will do for that dish. And oh, I'd wow. always found a tint, you know a little bit of hint of, of it in there. But I couldn't believe what, like, a little teaspoon of lemon zest and obviously maybe a little squirt of that uh, uh, lemon in there, you know, on top of it. And, you know, I just absolutely, it's 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 like crack, you know. Once you get it in yeah. there and you got a little sourdough bread or a baguette or something, uh, just go for it. That's, uh, that's it, you know. So that's that's one of the other sold. kind of go-to. I'm sold. Quick ones. And yeah. I'll tell you what, Jim, I'm a firm believer that a little bit of lemon zest will do a lot for almost any dish. It, there's a certain vibrancy that it adds that you can't you can't specifically point it out because it's there, but it's certainly missing if it's not there. And it's uh, almost like the orange rind in an old fashioned. Yes, I'm gonna need to have it there. Right? That's a that's a great analogy. <laughs> a great analogy. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny because yeah. I went to a bar and they I ordered an old fashioned, waiting on somebody, and they go pre war or post war. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, pre war is no fruit. Post-war, we'll get you the orange, and, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, post-war, bring it right on. Yeah, so yeah, well, so, so my second one is seafood also, and it's shrimp and grits. And um, it's something that I kind of came to late in life, you know, as far as how long I've been cooking. But um, And I don't do traditional uh, – I, I, I shouldn't even call it grits. It's – well, it is. It's Italian grits. It's polenta. It's cheese polenta and shrimp. But I do it, you know, with a bacon base and um, – I don't know. I just like it. I've gotten pretty good at making it, and uh, it's unique. It has. Uh, it's not like anything you'll find in Louisiana. Um, it's it's kind of different, but it's it, it's popular. When I serve it, people like it. So he doesn't make that yeah. enough either. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but uh, I use Fontina cheese in my grits. I think that maybe one of the differences and that makes it stand apart is, uh, and they are really cheesy and creamy. I mean, they are. Uh, they're decadent and fattening and not good for you. You can hear your arteries harden as you eat it. but And Every, butter, you know, lots of butter. Everybody got to go sometime. Yeah. Well, yep. What a way to go. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So that's my second one. Well, my sainted uh, wife managed to surprise me a couple 
uh, Christmases ago with a Oklahoma Joe smoker, the big one that's got the firebox on the side and and the. I mean, you can actually barbecue in the firebox uh, if you wanted to, and we've done that. You do brats and burgers and stuff in there. You don't have to mess up the the big part. But um, one of the things I like to do is is get a big old pork loin. First of all, they don't cost very much. You can cut them in two. Uh, they last forever, and uh, you know you marinate them and uh, rub them down really good, and put them in there at about mm, I don't know two fifty for about six seven hours, and uh, get a good uh, get a good smokering on those on those pork loins, and uh, they make great little sandwiches. You can you can freeze them, you can you know stick them in the refrigerator. You, they're good for parties because you can put them on. Little uh, kings of wine, you can put them on little dinner rolls, and uh, that, and they usually come out just really nice and moist and tender. Um, I use a couple of different little pans of water uh, in my in my smoker, so that it's basically a really hot sauna is kind of what right. what you're making. Yeah. And so. Brad knows how to do it. He does it right. It's it's, it's a great. Good. It's a great. I'm still uh, smoke working line. on. I'm still working on it. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, smoking is a is a lifetime sort of a deal. And I've done ribs, and they've they've been okay. And I've done chicken, and it's been okay. But the pork loin ones, I I'm kind of getting getting better at those. So anyway, oh, yeah, great. They are sounds good. Amazing. They are good. Love that. All right. What's your third? Thirty-minute uh, uh, quick meal and stuff. One of the things that I have found, and it's really funny because most recipes people talk about stuff like that. They'll talk about, you know, taking a chicken breast. Well, once the kids moved out, you know, all of a sudden you get a couple of chicken breasts. That's too much food. And then you have a chicken breast. You cut it in half, and it's like, well, maybe not enough, or maybe enough, and what have you. But it's funny. Later on in life, I have really enjoyed thighs. Right. So I was watching something on TV, and they took just four skin on bone in chicken thighs and you salt and pepper both sides and you take and you cut right along the bone on the backside not the skin side just loosen it up ever so slightly put your pan a non-stick preferably with a lid pan on medium high heat put it down skin side down for nothing else in the pan for 25 minutes right five minutes turn it over 30 minute chicken you will not believe how much juice, fat, whatever pours out of it. Because, again, you haven't added anything. And it's theoretically been dry when you put it in there. It comes out crispy. Again, you didn't fry it in oil or anything like that. It did it all on its own. And the taste that it comes with is absolutely phenomenal. And I learned to do that real quick because I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to, you know, to, to, to defrost things. And I was picking things up on the fly or it was easy to, you know, to, to do that kind of stuff. So there's a go-to section of my freezer that has, you know, four packs of skin on, um, you know, thighs and I'll do it. And then easy enough, if you could, if you're looking for that 30 minute meal and you love that taste of chicken, cause I mean that bone skin and type of chicken meat, brings out that flavor i just boil a pot of uh of uh orzo right yeah. pour it out and i'll take some mascarpone cheese put it right on top of there put a little garlic paste some chives on there mix it all together touch of salt and then i'll just lay that on the plate and put the chicken on top and you're in heaven sounds great i i believe the chicken thigh is one of the most underrated and when i watch cooking shows that's all they use you know i was a white meat guy growing up and chicken breasts are nice but Man, you get so much more moisture and flavor out of those thighs. And I do believe bone-in cooking is great, but you can get boned, deboned chicken thighs around here mm-hmm. that are really nice. You don't yeah, have to fool with that bone. And uh, so that sounds like a great, great recipe. My third one is something that's kind of off the charts because I am not a baker. Uh, I am a cook and I rarely use I will look at a recipe but I rarely follow a recipe I'm usually dash of this dash of that you know adapted on the fly but I have um, perfected my grandmother's pecan pie recipe where my mother my sisters my aunts after my grandmother passed none of them could perfect it and the reason was it was written down but it was it was not the way she did it you know uh (laughs) 
And I kind of stumbled on where where the recipe says so many tablespoons. It's actually so many tablespoons and another half a tablespoon. So it's it's all t- and it's technique. You don't use a beater. You use a fork. You don't. You know, it's all about how you handle the ingredients. But um, and I only make them around Thanksgiving and Christmas. But I have become the pecan pie guy in my family. If I'm if anybody's making pecan pies, it's me. I have a couple of very close friends that I will supply pecan pies to uh, around the holidays, and I got myself into that on my own accord. Now it's expected of me, so uh, you know I can't let them down. I don't. But, I don't think it's even expected during the holidays. I think a Fourth of July pecan pie is just great, or Memorial Day, or Groundhog's Day, yeah. or and the really great thing is my wife, who is a great baker, she makes phenomenal homemade whipped cream which goes on top of it which is really nice so pecan pie is my third one but and it's more of a uh, a pride thing of being able to say that i was able to adapt my grandmother's recipe and uh and duplicate it so and the honorable mention for uh for keith from janet is her sheet cake she makes a sheet cake jim that i'm just telling you it goes from kind of a cake to a brownie to almost a candy bar, it you want to do it, you want to eat it in in stages. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> it ages pretty well. It ages. It's it does. It's like a fine wine. It's like a fine wine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and honestly, I don't cook all that much. Brenda does most of it. But we have we have flirted with truffles. We have made. We have tried oh, all kinds of different truffles. And uh, the fun thing with truffles is. It's it's really for the I mean for the ingredients you only got two or three things you got chocolate that you melt and you got some heavy cream and you got a little butter and 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 then you get a little bourbon and then it gets a little weird as to where you want to go from that right. what you want to put them on I saw one the other day you could put do with brandy and so but the thing again. The ingredients aren't the deal. It's the execution because you put all that stuff together, it gets sticky. And trying to make the balls out of it or finding the right kind of uh, of uh, anything to put it in that it won't stick to, some kind of a mold. But anyway, but after you get them right and you get them back in the refrigerator and they harden up a little bit and you put a little powdered sugar or cocoa powder or whatever – they're really good. They're, they're great, and they're great with red wine, and they're they great do. with coffee. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then get a good Pinot and do a little tasting with those truffles. Oh, dude, I'm telling you, yeah. you will you will love it. Yeah. You guys have a date night. They're good. Truffles and wine. It'll be awesome. Yeah. Love it. I love it. Love it. Good. Well, we have had a great time, Jim. We so appreciate your joining us and the stories you've told. And I, I just can't tell you how much fun we've had. We hope, been a we hope it's uh, been fun well, for you, too. And we do want to do it again sometime. I, I, I can't thank you guys enough for, A, thinking of me and being so uh, uh, cordial and uh, open for listening to my BS. Uh, <laughs> I've got an opportunity to catch a couple of your guys' uh, podcasts. And I, I love what you're doing. It's fun. It's interesting. And, you know, I wish you guys the best. We Like That Too is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of bon vivants everywhere. To get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because we We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too.